I was aware, you know, kind of piecemeal of, man, this is, and I remember having that thought, everybody should have an experience like this for six months so that we realize that we are a product of our circumstance. We are a product of luck. You know, this isn't a picking up by the bootstraps, meritocracy kind of thing. This is, well, you know, we were born where we were born, when we were born and how we were born. And that dictates a heck of a lot. Welcome to the podcast, Being All of Us. It's great to have you here. My name is Brian David George, and my mission is to inspire you to become an agent of change in your own life through the stories of people like you from around the world who are on a journey of self-discovery and inclusion. I believe that these conversations will lift you up and help you to uncover your potential and to become your higher self. So sit back, go for a walk, a run, a drive, whatever works for you, and enjoy some time to get to know more about yourself. And welcome to the Being All of Us podcast. Today I am joined by Ariadne Maria Ferro Bajuelo. Ariadne, thank you so much for being with us today on Being All of Us. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm so happy to be here with you. <laughs> it's it's my pleasure. And we actually, we've known each other for, I don't even know how many years. Actually, we met, I should say. Right, we right. met quite a few years back in Madrid when we were both living there. Well, you still do live there. <laughs> and <laughs> And then we've come back into contact somewhat recently. I guess we kind of bumped into each other a few times over the years. And so I'm, I'm very happy to have you here today to hear your story. And that's kind of how this starts off is by just saying, so Ariadne, tell us your story. <laughs> you have a very interesting one. I think you've been around, around the world sounds kind of strange. You know, tell us your <laughs> background. <laughs> Yeah, we were just, before we started recording, we were talking about the year we were born. We're not going to say that now. Um, <laughs> tell us a little we bit look, about you. We look much younger than we are. Exactly. We'll Age is a state that. of mind. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> wow. Now, feel free to just cut me off because I'm a big talker. And when I get started, I don't stop. So basically, yeah, it's funny when people tell me, you have an interesting story. And I think it's not interesting because I guess because it's mine and, you know, it just, I just did it. So, <laughs> so I was born a, quite a few decades ago in Miami, Florida, but I, I, I in a hospital in Miami, Florida, but I'm from Hialeah, Florida, very proudly, La Ciudad Que Progresa. And it's especially when I was born, but even so now it's a, it's 90% Cuban. So either people who were mainly Cuban exiles or at the very least people who were children or direct descendants of Cuban exiles or Cuban immigrants. So I really, so I grew up with that idea. I remember I have this distinct memory of being seven years old and thinking grownups speak Spanish and kids speak English because that was my environment. You know, at school, we all spoke English with our friends and our teachers, but then at home, we all spoke Spanish. So in my mind, it was English is a language that kids speak and Spanish is a language that grownups speak. So wow. that... That really was cement. And I, I, I distinctly remember thinking that and just all of the language, you know, all of the anglicisms and the code switching and there were all the calcs that we created. Like there were so many things. Are, are we allowed to curse on this podcast? You can say whatever you want. <laughs> yeah. It's funny. I remember one time and it wasn't until I, I left home for college. I went to Central Florida and Orlando go nights and, um, I remember I was telling the story about a friend of mine who was going to come visit me and he got distracted and he took the wrong exit. And so he arrived several hours later 
And I told my friends, oh yeah, he was eating shit. He was eating shit. And he, you know, and they were like, what was he like eating potato chips in the car? And I was like, what? How do you not understand? And there was a Panamanian woman there. And I thought, well, you understand, right? And she says, no, because it was Cuban Spanish was estaba comiendo mierda, which is like, you know, he had his head in the clouds. He was doing everything, but uh-huh. paying attention. And I just calced it and thought, all right, that's it. And I, I was having so many experiences like that where I thought my little microcosm, you know, or my little bubble was such a hermetically sealed bubble. So after Orlando, then I went to Gainesville for my master's degree, go Gators. And then I even had more experiences like that. Well, actually, I should say that's what spurred me to start to study modern languages. Because I thought I had this naive notion of what I speak is how it's spoken because I didn't know any better. And, you know, it was such a such an insular community. So I just was really curious, really, really curious. I wanted to learn more and more and more. And because we couldn't go to Cuba at the time because of the embargo, even though it was so close and we still had family there and we would write letters and call sometimes. For me, the notion of the motherland was Spain because our real motherland was so forbidden or so prohibited, you know, we couldn't go. So I said, okay, well, if I can't go to Cuba and I, and I have been since I have been since, but at the time I couldn't go. I decided when I was 18, my first summer after school, after freshman year of college, I decided to come to Spain, even though I had no family in Madrid, but it was the closest thing that I could do to look for my roots because I couldn't go where I really needed to go. And it was great. It was great. It was great. It it was amazingly eye-opening to see how, how insular not only my community was, but the U.S. in general is, and how as an 18-year-old, I was so ignorant. I remember being shocked seeing that Nestle wasn't a U.S. American company. Why Nestle? Wow. (laughs) Right. Those things that we assume that what we're familiar with is just like, that's the world, right? It's ours. Exactly. So I had all of these eye-opening experiences. So then I went, I, I, I went to Gainesville for my master's degree and I did that in Spanish and Portuguese. So then I was able, so privileged, so thankful to be able to go to Rio to do study abroad there. And then mm. I went back to Madrid. Oh yeah, it was amazing. Love it, love it. So yeah, it, and, and it all had to do with kind of like this vision quest of trying to make sense of this community that I love and that I miss. And that even though, you know, when you're there, it's like this, you know, like your big, loud, crazy family that you, you know, you, you want to escape after two weeks, but you need that. You need that shot of, of that community every once in a while, but to help me make sense of it, because I really, it, it, it was so all encompassing and so normal that the more I creeped outside of it, the more I realized, oh my gosh. So I had this identity crisis as well of when you're there, you kind of feel nothing because, you know, you've got nothing to compare to everybody's like you. And then when, when I left, I didn't feel like a U.S. American in a lot of ways, because things that I said were different, the food that I ate, the way we celebrated our customs. So I kind of felt the the music, I kind of felt a little bit out of sorts. Then when I went to Cuba for the first time, I didn't feel right saying I was Cuban either, because sure, you know, we may have talked the same and know a lot of, you know, the values and everything, but I had no idea about their popular culture. I didn't know who these comedians were they were talking about. I didn't know who their politicians, you know. Right. There's so much more to uh, an identity. Uh, there's the whole part of the popular culture behind that identity has so much to do with 
identifying with that culture, right? Right, right. So, I mean, it was this huge identity crisis. So that's why I said, you know, so I, I think that that's what spurred me on this, like I call it a vision quest to study aspects of that and things that help to make that up. So I think that's why I did languages, because I think at the time, too, that was the closest link to culture that I could think of, I guess. Yeah. So I did that for a while. And then I went back to Central Florida and I worked there as a lecturer. So I taught Spanish language studies and and then I did elementary Portuguese. And I did that for a few years. I started really young, too. I was really it was funny. I taught my first class there when I was 23. So Ooh, I was is young. very young. Yeah, I was really young and I loved it. I, I loved it. It was so fun. And then about a few years, two or three years into it, I had, I married young as well. And then I got divorced a year later and it was absolutely just horrible because he was and is, I assume, such a beautiful, beautiful person. And I didn't really understand why I was doing it, but it was just kind of the sense of, (sighs) I just felt I need to do more. I need to see more. I need to, I need to break free. And that's something I still feel bad about, but I feel good about in the sense that it brought me here. So then I came here to Spain and that was, and, and of course, with this U S American exceptionalism of, Oh, I'm from the U S it'll be fine. I speak Spanish. I'll be okay. And I ended up not having, I ended up living here without papers for two years. And it was such a humbling experience. I remember thinking everybody should live without papers in another country for six months, just to kind of get a real taste of life. And I have to say for people who don't know what you look like, we were speaking about this a little bit before (laughs) we started recording. Okay. Ariadne's family is Cuban and... If you look at her, she has blue eyes, very white skin and blonde hair, <laughs> right? So she, she fills, I guess, the, the idea that people in Spain have of what quote unquote U.S. Americans look like. Right. So I'm right. sure nobody stopped you on the street. If you had a more, if you had a different ethnic Cuban, yeah, stereotypical Cuban look, if your skin were darker and, you know, then I'm sure that you would have been stopped here. Absolutely. I mean, I was able, and, and, and I say this, and we talked about this beforehand too, that even though I had experiences that were very humbling, very humbling, I was lucky and privileged in a lot of ways. I was able to go back and forth between the US and Spain for Christmas, for, and, and nobody ever said anything to me. You know, I was never, oh, you overstayed your tourist visa. However, it was a different story when I had to make transactions over the phone, when I had to ask for services and that sort of thing. And that's, that, that was tough. And I remember just thinking people deal with this all All the time, time. all the time. Yeah. And it was really, I mean, I went into a depression. I thought about just, and I remember thinking I'm here because I feel like being here, you know, I don't even, I could always call my folks and say, help me out, you know, help me scrape up some money and let's go back home. So yeah, that was a real eye-opening. Sorry, I, I told you I talk a lot. I'm, I'm sorry. You're fine. Um, but this, it, is, this is about uh, you. <laughs> oh, thanks. All of this really shaped kind of where I am now. So it was all of these awakenings into who I am and, and what I am being me, you know, into who I am and, and, and why I'm here and where I'm going. 
So it was that realization. And of course, back then, you know, we didn't use the terminology that we use now, the way we use it now, like privilege and, and that sort of thing. But I was very well aware, I would say I'm lucky. I would always say, oh, I'm really lucky because I can do this. And, you know, I'm lucky because pretty much anywhere in Europe, I can just kind of fit right in and nobody really notices me. Oh, um, God, that is so, ah, you know, that's, and I, I, I think this is worth mentioning how being, it's true, being like white skinned and moving through Europe, like you, you really can just do whatever you want, which is so yeah. not the case for so many people in so many parts of the world, you know, and, and I want to like share a little personal story. I remember the first time I went outside of, you know, North America and Europe, the first time I went to Morocco, there was a part of me that was terrified to go and I couldn't figure out why. And it was because, you know, here, if I keep my mouth shut, any part of Europe, yeah. if I keep my mouth shut, nobody has to know that I'm not, that I don't belong here, you know? And, right. And then suddenly like I'm in Morocco, even with my mouth shut, everybody's going to know that I don't belong here, that I'm not from here. And that at the time terrified me. Just like the first time I went to Asia, I was like, oh, there's a part of me that's scared because I'm not going to fit in. Oh my yes. God. You know, as I say these things, I hear how far I've come since then, you know, yes, and, th right. and these were real, like they were real concerns of mine at the time. So I'd love to hear you talk a bit about that in your experience, you know, how, how it feels now to say, oh my God, what I was calling luck, you know, you were calling it luck. It's yeah, actually an yeah. extremely unjust privilege that you and I have Absolutely. had all of these years. Absolutely. And, and, and what's, I don't want to say funny, that's not the right word. I think what's kind of like the salient part of all of this is that I was aware of these things as I was going through them. I wasn't contextualizing it. I wasn't seeing the big picture. I just remember waiting in these hours long line, you know, with, with other people, people who didn't look, who don't look the way that I look and who don't have the same experience. And in that line, we were all the same. In that line, we were all sharing stories and we were all telling, you know, I of course was sharing less and just telling jokes. There was this one joke that it was, about this dude that dies. And then they say, okay, where do you want to go? Heaven or hell? He's like, I don't know. And he's like, okay, well, okay, well, let's go to heaven. And then he sees heaven as it seems really boring. People are just there playing, playing harp and whatever. And then he goes down to hell and it's like all these parties and debauchery. And he's like, oh, this is where I'm going. This is, this is where I want to go. And then when he gets there, it's, um, he's constant. He's like being used like as this sexual play thing all the time, blah, 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 blah. And he's like being force fed alcohol to the point of, you know, he just can't take it anymore. He's like, oh my God, this is terrible. This is not at all what I expected when I came here. And the punchline was, it's not the same thing to be a tourist than it is to be an immigrant. So these are the kind of jokes that they were saying in these lines, which right. for me was, it was sad, but it was fascinating. And, and, and it made me think, wow. That's why I thought everybody should do this. And then people were telling their stories of why they were there. And I felt embarrassed. I did because I was like, I'm here because I want to be, you know, I'm here because I went through a divorce that I felt really bad about. And I was, you know, I just wanted to put some tierra de por medio. I just kind of wanted to just have some physical separation distance, from all of right. that. Yeah some physical distance. And it's just a great place to live. And for, for me, it was a great place to live. It just really aligned with a lot of my, with, with my lifestyle. So I, I felt really ashamed that I'm hearing all these stories. And I'm like, man, 
I could, you know, I mean, my family's working class, but they could scrape together money for a plane ticket for me to fly home whenever, whenever I, I needed that. So, so yeah, that was really, that was really eye-opening. And even still, even with my privilege, even with my, my passing and all of that, what I did experience was really, really rough because my accent isn't a Spanish accent. I would call for apartments and they wouldn't be available. Or one time this person flat out was like, oh yeah, I'm from the U S yeah. But where are you really, where are you really from? And I said, no, I'm really from the U S but how about, because he, of course I'm talking to him in Spanish. Yeah. But where's your family from Cuba? I don't want those people in my house. Cluck. And of course these are wow. experiences on the phone. And, and you know, and that was tough. And then trying to get healthcare, what I wasn't documented yet just the, the, what I perceived as disdain from the civil servants. And it just made me think, gosh, you know, and luckily because I spoke English, I could always teach English, which I think a lot of us do. So I could, you know, so I decided to, to pay for private health insurance because I didn't want to have to deal with the humiliation of that. And it opened my eyes to, wow, I have the choice to do that. And there are so and many people who people. don't have that choice. Yeah. So I didn't contextualize it within today's discourse, but I was aware of it. I was aware, you know, kind of piecemeal of, man, this is, and I remember having that thought, everybody should have an experience like this for six months so that we realize that we are a product of our circumstance. We are a product of luck. You know, this isn't a picking up by the bootstraps meritocracy kind of thing. This is, well, you know, we were born where we were born, when we were born and how we were born. And that dictates a heck of a lot. You were talking about something earlier, which I think is really interesting, which you know, this identity crisis and who you really are and, you know, this need to break free. And now you're, you're talking about the exact same thing, you know, how we are conditioned into a culture or different cult. Actually, you know, there's so many different layers of culture that we're born into and conditioned in, and we don't even realize it. It's not just the country that you're born into. It's also who your parents are. It's also what part of the country you live in, what social and economic class your family, like there's so many different layers of culture there. Right, right. And so I would love to hear you talk about this identity crisis a little bit more and maybe this kind of quest for you. I think you call it the vision quest, maybe, you know, vision like quest, yeah. discovering more like, wait, 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 wait a minute. Like, I don't even know who I like, who am I anyway? And all of this, you know, like, could you maybe talk about that? I think it's an interesting topic. Sure. And, and, and it's an interesting question because I don't know that I'm quite there yet. Well, it's a journey. I think we're all, we're all like on the path at some point in the path, right? Absolutely. And you know, it's funny, this relates a lot to what we're talking about, you know, today's discourse versus maybe what it was 20 years ago. We didn't really use the term microaggression, but these microaggressions that I experienced really helped me to kind of fine tune my, my identity in the sense that it was that, you know, these, where are you really from? People would say things like, oh, you don't care, for example. Oh, so what are you? You know, what are you? Okay, well, I'm, I would say, I used to always say I'm Cuban. Cuban, really from where? Well, actually, I'm Cuban from Hialeah. Cubans who live here in Spain, when I say Hialeah, they know. <laughs> they know where I'm from. But people are like, well, what's that? So I felt kind of fake saying that. And I would, have, oh, and, you know, I'd have dear, well-intentioned friends say that you're not really Cuban. But I definitely identified with that culture more than I did with a more Anglo-American. Right, right. Culture. So then when I would tell, so then I I shifted. I'm American. I didn't use a U.S. American. And so, you know, I'm American. 
So why do you speak Spanish so well? So I found myself having to give this whole long extended story. That first of all, I was surprised that people, you know, if people wanted to know that much, but I, I, I felt myself having to find a way to explain it. And then I felt myself having to try to find a more abridged version to say who I was, or, you know, how I, how I identified. So that's why I, I narrowed it down to the Cuban U.S. American. But then I would hear things like, well, you don't look Cuban or you don't look, you know, and that's tough. And then I don't, this probably happens to you too. So I've, right now I'm stuck on Cuban U.S. American as far as my identity in terms of ethnicity. That's where I am right now. However, I struggle with the, I've been gone for so long. I'm a Cuban U.S. American from the start of the millennium. You know, I'm not, maybe not what that looks like today because you really don't get a lot of that with two week visits a year. So, and then my partner is Argentine with German roots, right? So we've got a lot going on there too. My children are born, were born here in Madrid. So when we speak Spanish together, we've got three different accents going on. Three variations of Spanish there. Right. So at some point, I think that our little collective family culture will kind of consolidate in some way my, in my mind, but I'm not there yet. So for me, in terms of ethnicity, I right now, I still say, and I feel really strongly about the Cuban U.S. American part. I feel strongly about that. So that's in terms of that ethnicity. I mean, of that identity. It's funny because we, we, you know, everybody in their life experiences different stages, I'll call them different levels. Okay. And you don't have to, I want to make it clear that when we are talking about these experiences, these experiences can apply to anyone in the world. Even if like for people who've never left their town, you don't need to have moved your body from your town to have these type of experiences where our identity becomes more complex through our experience. You know, like becoming a parent is adding another layer onto your identity, losing someone in your life. Like when your parents pass on, that also is another layer of your identity, getting a new job, coming out of the closet. Like there are a thousand different ways that your identity becomes more and more complex, the more experiences we have. And I want to make it clear that, you know, this is relatable for everybody, even if you've never left your town, we all are constantly growing. Like it's impossible not to grow in life. And that's kind of where this identity crisis you were talking about, I think it comes in. There's a part of, well, no, life is growth. Like that's why we're here is to grow. You know, in fact, I was recently listening to um, a little clip of a conversation between Jay Shetty and Will Smith. And Will Smith was talking about how life is school. Like that's, we were born to learn and to grow. Like that's why we're here. Absolutely. I, I, I still think though, I, I think though that we have such a need to belong to something. So that's why when people talk about identity, I think that we, unless we have some kind of, I guess, marginalized identity that we really think, okay, this, this is me. I think generally speaking, people tend to shift towards their ethnic or their national identity. So the country they're from, their ethnicity. And I think that there's this need to feel like you belong to something. So when yeah. you when you do move, I mean, my mom would be a great person for you to, <laughs> to interview. Too. I mean, her story of leaving Cuba and what she had to go through and how she had to go through different places and, and the loss that she experienced on so many levels. I mean, that is, I, she should write a memoir. 
But what I was getting at is here's somebody who was born in Cuba, raised in Cuba, brought up in the U.S. or rather is now living in the U.S. And she has the same kind of existential crisis in this regard of saying, yeah, I'm Cuban. I really am. I was born and raised there, but I go back there now and it's not, you know, it's not who I was. So I think that that's why it's important too. exactly what you were saying. We're growing, we're learning, and we're learning that we have other aspects to our identity that isn't just, you know, one one of the things that uh, you're saying this, and I'm remembering a conversation I had the other day about how countries literally are just lines that we as thinking humans draw on a map. So all of all of these identities that we are so hell bent on conserving. Mm-hmm, it's just mm-hmm. ideas that we as thinking human beings have created. They're not they're yes. not natural laws. Like culture is not a natural law. A country is not a natural law. It's something that we collectively race. agree upon. Race <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Race is a thing because we agree that that's something to I ah, yeah, who was yeah. it the other day I was saying that in Africa black people don't exist. Right. Because, right. Because they don't know like in a small place where they've never seen anybody who's not like them, they don't understand that they are quote unquote black because nobody's ever told them that before. They just see each other. And it's only like when we come in contact with people who are different from us that we understand like how we're different from each other. Right. And this is, uh, I, we could talk about this forever and ever. I love. I know, I know. There's, and, these. Um, and I'm so, so I, restrained. <laughs> <laughs> Identity is a really, really interesting topic. And I think that we are in a very interesting point in history right now. Because we're questioning identity in so many ways, in so many different ways that we haven't questioned it before. You know, you were talking earlier about how we now have maybe, these are my words, I think you were saying about like a different vocabulary now that we didn't have in the past. Like we know how to refer to privilege uh, or now we say U.S. Well, not everybody. You know, a lot of us are trying to say (laughs) U.S. American because American covers people like from all of North and South America. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's very pretentious to think that everybody should understand that I'm referring to the United States when I say I'm American. Right. Absolutely. And I don't know. I think that this idea of of our diversity being our strength is something that we're starting to understand as a part of identity work. You know, it's through our differences that we are stronger. So um, maybe you could talk about how you got it, because I know you're a you're a DEI champion. You are quite the DEI champion. (laughs) For people who are listening, who you know, I also realize that we're using a lot of language here that we understand and that a lot of people may right. not. Like earlier, you said passing. Could you maybe talk about what? Maybe let's talk about DEI a little bit. Okay, what does okay, it mean? Okay, what does passing that. mean? Right. You, know, you said okay, I well, pass. Passing is under that umbrella of or code switching. DEI you also mentioned code target. switching. Right, code switching. Yes, yes. I'm sorry, I do do that. DEI is diversity, equity, and inclusion work. When we talk about passing, it means somebody who identifies as part of a marginalized group, but because of their presentation, because of the way they look, others don't automatically ascribe that identity to them. So even though I identify as a Latina or as a Hispanic woman, if I keep my mouth shut and I walk on the street because of my European look, people won't assume that I'm part of that culture. Esther, on the other hand, has a much more a stereotypical look. She has more olive skin, has dark curly hair, big brown eyes, and and her experiences have been different. I remember back uh, for around the 9-11 time when she would come to visit me, she was often pulled aside because she 
looked like she she looked like she could pass as 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 Arab. Yeah. So passing is even though you identify with one group, you look like or people people read you as a member of a predominant group. So a group that has more privilege. And then code switching. Actually, this is my my area. For me to be able to get papers here, actually, or to feel comfortable living here, I said, let me go ahead and get my my PhD while I'm here. So I did that in the University of Alcala, and I did work on Spanglish because it was something that was personal to me and that I found interesting. So Spanish and English in contact, which many of us in South Florida say is our first language. You saw when I said the whole eating shit thing, that's part of the... Right. So code switch, linguistically and culturally, is the same idea where you start speaking in one code or in one, in, linguistically, we'll say in one language, and then it could be the next sentence or even within a sentence, switch to another language. So I could start saying this, pero luego paso al español, and then I go back to English, and it's all one, one thought. Code switching culturally, on the other hand, is somebody that within their, their cultural in-group, which I'll just talk about my own experience, maybe I use a lot of Spanglish talking to my family, but if I'm around Spaniards, I make sure that my Spanish doesn't have that Spanglish peppered in there and it's more normative Spanish or that I don't use, you know, my Cuban American Spanish or my Cuban Spanish, that I, I, I adapt my patterns of behavior. I adapt my, my speech to fit in with a dominant culture when it's necessary. Well, why, why would you say it's interesting for anyone, not just people who have like these diversity factors that you're talking about? Why is it like, why is it important for my mother, you know, who is Euro descendant and has always lived in Virginia? Why is DEI work important for her? Gosh, I mean, first of all, I think that we have. She this... might not think it's very important for her to like, she's a, she's a nice woman. She's nice to everybody. And she doesn't really see how DEI, like learning, doing the work, as we call it, you know, doing the work is important. Right. What would you say to, that, to her? And, and it's tough because I see it and it's tough to, and I think it's, it's, it's what we're seeing now in our societies in the U.S. and then now here, we're seeing that lack of relevance of all of this, right? People like your, your nice mom might say things like, oh, but come, everybody's the same. And, you know, we have, we minimize these differences thinking that we're treating everybody the same. And that's all we need to do without realizing that we can treat them the same, but we don't have the same ease of access. We don't have the same. So number one, it's important so that people who aren't in dominant groups can have access, which I think is scary for those of us who have dominant identities or privileged identities. It's scary because we think that it's like this limited cake that if I have to give pieces to other people, I'm going to be left without cake instead of realizing that, you know, Bakers can keep baking cakes. It's the scarcity mindset that there's not enough right. for everybody. There's when not there's, enough. And it's your first. That's just that's yeah. just a mindset. But there's more than enough for everybody. Like you said, they can make exactly. they can make more cakes. It's not a problem. They can make more cakes. Right, right. So we can share. We can share. So that for others is it's important for us to realize that okay, we can treat some people the same. So yes. You know, we talk about the platinum rule, not the golden rule, the platinum rule, treat, treat others as they would like you to treat them. So understanding, so that work involves understanding 
the other's situation, other's background, other's challenges and obstacles. It doesn't mean that you don't have them, but they have them innately or they have them kind of, that's how they come out of the, you know, how do they say here, así viene de fábrica, you know, like they, they come out of the, out of the factory like that, like it comes already hardwired that yes. we're already going to have. If, if I'm, if, if I'm from this, or if I identify as this underrepresented or marginalized group already from the get-go, I'm going to have these obstacles that other people won't have, you know? And I think that that's hard for people to understand because I think, well, you know, I'm white, but my family's poor or I'm white, but you know, I have this or I have that. Yes, that's true. But you don't have those hardwired, not hardwired. I don't know. I, I, I can't, these ingrained or these automatic obstacles that other people do. So I think to help the other to get that slice of cake, it's important for us to understand that. And now for the person themselves, how enriching is it to learn things? I mean, just the, the, the fact that I was 18 years old and I left my country. And that's when I realized that Nestle wasn't a US country. Oh my God, this is really embarrassing to say this. I was already living here. So I was close to 30 years old when I learned. I remember I met this Hungarian woman and she told me that she lived in Boston for a long time and that she was working undocumented at Walmart. And I thought you could work at Walmart undocumented. I mean, this is really embarrassing to, to admit this, that I didn't know this. You could work at Walmart. Yeah, a lot of people do. Why? Because even though my background, it's a family of, you know, my, my parents had, you know, like there's this inter or this, this intergenerational or this community, this collective trauma of leaving, everybody had to abandon their country. They thought they were going to go back and they couldn't go back and they've died in, in exile, et cetera, et cetera. There was still privilege among other immigrants in the sense that, you know, there Cubans that arrived to, to the U.S. would get papers. So I didn't know anybody that wasn't documented. So the same way I extrapolated my kids speak English, parents speak Spanish, I extrapolated that, okay, you're here, you have papers. And it wasn't that I really thought that, I just never gave, I just never thought that people would be able to work without it. That ignorance, you know, somebody who went to school for so long was just astounding. So if I could think that, I'm sure other people are much more worldly than I am and realize that, especially nowadays, and that people work without papers. But how many other things do we not know about people's experience unless we're, we're told about it? And how many things are we missing out on if we don't? So it's not only good for others, it's good for us too. And, and that kind of brings me to the point of, okay, like everybody, I'm thinking about my mother. I'm thinking about, you know, you're a mother. So this is not just for people who have kids. It's all because we are all children of someone. You know, so it's how can I be a better parent? How can I be a better child? How can I be a better spouse? How can I be, how can I be a better coworker? Maybe you could talk about some examples in your life, your family, you as a mother. Like what, what things do you try to teach your children? How do you try to educate your children in a way that is inclusive? And why is that important? Right. This is something, and I really like that question. This is something that I been really consciously working on. I tried from the very beginning when my kids were little to, you know, as many parents do to be really gender neutral. If my kid wanted to paint his nails, that was cool. If my daughter, you know, my daughter wore short hair for a really long time, but then you realize, and then, you know, our toys were gender neutral, but kids come how they come and they gravitate towards the things they gravitate towards. So, you know, you, you kind of have to let them 
give them that freedom to, to express themselves how they, how they want. So I was thinking, okay, but what can I do consciously? So right now, I mean, my daughter's only three, but we, st- I, I, I try to read her and my son, he's eight stories that empower them about women, not only um, European women or, you know, women of European ancestry, but also women of color. So my, my daughter, when she was a baby, had a board book, you know, had like this collection of board books about, you know, kick-ass women. And they were women from the different continents. And it was, so I, I try to tell them that. And then we have like the series as, as they get older, my son is really into, oh my gosh, he loves reading the book, I Descent, the Ruth Bader Ginsburg children's story. He loves that one. So I try to do that through stories. I also, we work a lot on the language that we use. So if I say something just because of habit, I say something that I, oh gosh, I shouldn't say that. That's not, that's not kind to say, or that's not right to say, you know, like, I don't know, saying, I don't know if I should use an example, but maybe something like, oh, you know, I got gypped, something like that. I say, oh, well, that's not, you know, that's not nice. Or when he tells me things that happen at school, what do you think that, how do you think that that person felt? So I try to work a lot on empathy, try to work a lot on emotional intelligence. I think that a lot of DEI work starts with focusing on the individual and, you know, like that, that platinum rule, you know, how does that person need to be treated? How does that person want to be treated? And, you know, that kind of brings me to the point, something that I've realized in my own life and kind of one of the reasons why I started this podcast is because as I work on myself, you know, it's, it's really hard to show up for other people if I don't work on myself first, you know? Right. So I think that probably as a parent, the fact that you have done so much work on yourself has given you like this, this knowledge that, yeah, it's really like, I can empathize because I start by empathizing with myself. Like I can, I can kind of own my truth, you know, like, okay, this is the life that I've had. I didn't choose it. It just kind of like, I was born into this. And now I'm like, okay, so now that I'm starting to accept more of my part in the world, maybe my purpose, or, you know, that's, a, that's an entire different yeah, podcast. Yeah. Once we, we can kind of connect with who we are in the world, what potential we have to make a difference and how that starts with me. And then like, I bring it to other people. So it's like, you have done the work on yourself and that's why you understand that it's important for you to do this work with your kids. And maybe you could talk. And it's important for them to see too that, 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 that I mess up that I don't get it right all the time. We are human. That's how, like, right. it's a learning process, right? Exactly. It is such a learning process. Could you talk maybe a little bit about the work that you do or you have done in yourself and like how maybe that's been, Ooh. yeah. Something yeah, that- I've, yeah. The work I've done with myself, you know, on myself, I mean, I, I think I started going to therapy for the first time when my parents split up and I was 10. So it's something that's been part of my life for a long time. And I feel really fortunate to come from a culture where going to therapy isn't taboo. And it's changing here now in Spain, but I think you'll agree with me that it's been a slow, a slow process here. So it really started working on myself because I was, I was stumbling a lot in my personal relationships. So I talked about how I got divorced and you know, there were failed relationships on, on either side of, of that. And I had a colleague tell me one time, and I remember I was offended when she said it. And then I thought, oh my goodness, she's right. You know, what was it about me that was, you know, why was I 
it creating these circumstances for myself. So I decided to go back and work on that. And that opened up a whole, a whole world for me, you know, going back to our, to our kids, one of the things that really has helped me was my son is neurodiverse himself. And it has been a really, a really, a real rocky road. Sorry, just luckily for those who don't know, can you explain neurodiversity? Right. So, so we talk about neurotypical and neurodiverse to avoid using the word normal people whose brains cognitively work in a normal way. So they work in a typical way. So neurodiversity could be people who have attention deficit disorder, so ADHD, autism, dyslexia. So people who, who process things differently than maybe the majority of, of people. So my son has ADHD and he also has some associated, you know, you, how do they call them? Comorbidity. So usually when you have certain diagnoses, it's pretty typical to have other related diagnoses. And through his journey, I reconnected with my own diagnosis 20 years earlier and that I largely ignored. And then I began to connect many of these things, like these relationship issues, these just so many issues, problems, I don't want to say problems, but just different challenges that I had. And also things that I do, like, you know, you see me talking here and my hands are flailing and I talk so much and I talk so fast. And I always felt really self-conscious because, I mean, as a kid, I was called motor mouth and, you know, people always talk, Spanish talk so fast. When I would teach Spanish, people would tell me, I had a student tell me, do you speak so fast because you speak Spanish? You know? So I was, I was, I've always been, I was always really self-conscious about how much I speak and how quickly I speak. And then reconnecting with my diagnosis helped me back. You know what? No, this is a big part of my identity, you know, and one that I'm accepting. So there are things that I work on that I think this is something that's detrimental to me and to the people I love. Me talking so much could be annoying to others, but it doesn't bother me. So I'm, I'm going to embrace that, you know, because that's not detrimental in any real way <laughs> to anybody. And it helped me with my son talking about diversity and equity. So we call it our special brain. So he has a special brain and I have a special brain. And then that's you know, beautiful. That I, I love on. it. Yeah. So he sees that I went on to get a PhD. So he sees, yeah, we have a special brain. So sometimes people don't understand this quite well, but you know, but it doesn't mean anything, you know, it doesn't, it, 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 so we might have to work a little bit harder on some, some things we might have to do this and that, but there's so many great things that come from our special brain. My son also has grown up. One of my, my dearest friends here, she is married to a woman and they have a child together. And my son, he and my son are the same age. So he grew up seeing this friend of his that has two moms. One of my other dearest friends here in Spain had a child on her own. So he has another friend that has one mom and no dad or no other parent. So exposing them to this or exposing, that sounds terrible, but, you know, having him experience this as part of life and saying, you know, he notices that most of his friends have a mom and a dad, but it doesn't seem to him to be at all. He's, he's never asked, but why does, or why does he, or, you know, why doesn't he sees it as, okay, that's, not as common. I don't see that among my other friends, but okay, that's cool. Would you say that you are, I'm trying to find a good question there. I want to say, do you feel like you're a better mother 
because you can talk to your son about his special brain because you're celebrating his difference as something that makes him unique. I, I don't know. I feel I f- I'm thinking about you know how a lot of parents are. They see some. They would see something like neurodiversity as like oh what a shame. You know my child is not quote unquote normal. I can think about my own family and how you know they accept me for who I am. And if I like they would. They probably don't know it, but they would be happier if I were straight. Like it would make their right. life easier. You know? Oh, sure. It would make my life so much easier if my son were, were neurotypical. Yeah. And then, you know, without the other, the other diagnoses that he has as well. But, you know. It, and it, I, so I wonder if you uh, express to your son that that makes him like, that's why he is who he is. Like, that's, that's what makes him right. him. Is that's one of the things that, like that's his superpower? I'll say in that's a way. Superpower, and, and right? we use that. We actually use that term, superpower. You know, we do that, and and believe me, it would make our lives easier. I mean, you know, since he was three years old, he's been in speech therapy. You know, just to kind of help him, and it, it it's been difficult for us as parents to see how he's been ostracized at times, or how you know, and not by other children, but by people who we entrusted him to, so other educators who we entrusted him to, how he was treated by them, because kids, I mean, you know, kids are, especially at those young ages, are really kind and accepting, you know? So it it was- Because they haven't learned yet that there's, exactly. They haven't learned yet. That that's, you know, that being who you are is not okay with the world, right? Right, right. And that has always, so it would be easier, especially because, you know, as a parent, and I think it happens to every parent whose child deviates from their vision of what would have been a happy, easy life for them. You think, oh my gosh. So I'm assuming your parents may think, oh God, if he were straight, it would be easier for him to navigate the world, you know? And they're loving parents, you know, they're well, they are, they have good intentions. Yeah, exactly. And I think, oh gosh, my son, it would be easier for him. But, or, and I should say, yes, and that may be true, but that's not his problem. That's the world's problem. That they, don't exactly. accept, you know, they don't accept that. I think it makes me a better mom, honestly, to share the diagnosis with him because I see myself in him. As a matter of fact, I was the first person to diagnose him when he was little, when he was about two years old, I told my partner and I, I and that's the first time I shared with my partner that I had ADHD because I was diagnosed at 20 and never did anything about it because I did well in school. So I thought, okay, well, that's that. And that's the first time I shared my diagnosis with him. And I said, I think this is what's going on. And it took a couple of years to get the diagnosis, but um, because I could relate to him and understand him better. And, and there are lots of great things. I mean, he has this energy and this intelligence and this drive and this humor. He's so inquisitive. And, and, And we do, we do talk about that superpower. So what? Okay. I want to make sure we get into this conversation because you coming from the education, from your background in education. So let's imagine this world that we would love to live in, the one that we can create, where education is about helping children discover what their superpower is, what makes them different and unique, instead of trying to make them fit into the mold. You know, how, what kind of education system would you design for your kids to grow up in? What kind of education system would be the one that would teach us to, hey, like life is about learning who you are and then sharing it with the world. 
right? How, what would that look like? That is, that is an amazing question. And I actually thought, gosh, if I won a gazillion dollars, I would love to open up my own school. However, I think a really important first step or a parallel step is to change structures and systems because kids can, we can work on the kids, but if they don't have the access to be able to, to realize, is that the word I want to use to, to be able to, to actually make that happen, to manifest that if they don't have that access, then it's going to be really frustrating. It's going to be really, really frustrating. So I think that there has to be this, this parallel work beyond education. So in society, to be able to equalize that access so that every child that is in that educational system feels that they have the same options of access to be able to manifest what they see themselves as like, doing. To the, system is ex- the system is expecting them, specifically them, not this idea of who you should be, but this, you know, hey, you, we want you here. We want you to see yourself reflected in the other people here. And, and who you are varies. Yeah. Yes. Who you are varies because, and especially people, and, you know, we were talking about, well, why does the average person need to know about DEI? And, and I think that this is like my, my life's purpose, I think also is, is now is to include neurodiversity in that DEI work and to work towards that. And I, and I need to do work myself on it because I haven't been the best advocate for maybe colleagues or maybe just other friends and colleagues who have, who are neurodiverse, but in a different way to me. So I need to work on that myself, but I see it. I, I saw it with my son when his teacher at three years old hid a permission slip from me, gave it out to the rest of the parents, but didn't give it to me. And I found out from other parents and I said, Hey, where's the permission slip for this field trip? And she said, Oh, I don't, I just don't think it'll be a good idea if your child goes. I was like, what? That is not a decision for you to make. I said, if anything, I said, I, I may well agree with you, but we need to talk about this. Why? Because he was a handful. You know, he was a three-year-old child with undiagnosed ADHD. So he was bouncing off the walls. And this, this is what's so detrimental to children in education systems. So what you were saying before, this is where we see you. No, no. I would love to have an education system. I would love to have a national budget that gives priority to, we'll talk about healthcare too, but that prioritizes education and that invests heavily in education. Each classroom needs to have a reduced size. Each classroom needs to have a reduced size. Each classroom needs to have multiple teachers working at the same time. So one head teacher and maybe three support staff. So students can work in small groups. So we can realize these students' potential. So that students, so students can be those rambunctious kids that are bouncing off the walls and you know what? I empathize with that teacher because she's got my son and she had 25 other kids there. I had him at the time alone and it was exhausting for me to parent my child. But he's a child and his body needed to move and needs to move and he shouldn't be penalized for that. I understand that the teacher's a human being. The teacher needs support. The teacher needs infrastructure. The teacher needs money. The teacher needs other people in the classroom to help her do their him in this in his case it was a her but to help them do the job so that children like my son can bounce off the walls because their body needs to move so that children they can have somebody sit next to them and 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 give them the attention that they need 
what we need is an education system where we invest in students and we invest in teachers and we do so generously. We do so generously. It's, it's, it sounds like the perfect recipe. Speaking of recipes, <laughs> I, I would love to hear maybe a couple steps, things that, I mean, I, I love being practical. So I would love to hear you. And actually this is a perfect tie-in to our final, the final stretch here. I like to end every episode with a challenge for the people listening. And I think that this system, this education system that you're describing and education can be understood on a very broad scale. So um, for anybody, since we're all students of life, what are a couple steps that we can take to creating a world that is, is made for all of us, you know, for for students who need to move a lot more or for people, you know, adults who just like, what are a few things that we can do? What is a challenge that we do, you would give people in their life? Maybe something they can do over the next week to just move a, just 2% more towards that world that is waiting for all of us, not just some of us. Wow. That is a really, really heavy <laughs> It's a big question. ask. I know. <laughs> yeah. As you were asking, I had all these zoom, zoom, zoom thoughts zipping through my brain. So I'll just kind of go with, I'm not going to have this eloquent, quotable answer. So I'm going to give you, <laughs> I'm going to give you just the, the, the impressions that, kept, that were like zapping through my mind when you were asking the question. Building a world like this is hard and it's scary because of what we talked about before. It's really scary because, you know, that saying in Spanish that you'd rather, or in, in, in English it has it, what is it? That better the devil you know, right? Uh, so yeah. it's kind of like, even though it's not the best, it's what we know and we're comfortable with it. Change is, is always scary, even if it's for something good. So I think one thing that we need to do is to give ourselves grace and compassion because we are human. And even those of us who work in equity and inclusion, those of us who work in advocacy, don't always feel that compassion towards the people that we're advocating for. Yep. Because collectives aren't monoliths. and and I think that we need to give we need to give ourselves as the people doing the work compassion and grace and understand that we will falter and that we may fail the people that we're advocating for because we are human, right? And because needs change. And you know, we were talking about before, we didn't have the same discourse 20 years ago that we have now, even though the situation was the same, right? And realities change and and, and they manifest differently. So what works today may not be applicable even two years from now. This is always, like you said, it's a work in progress. So I think we need to give each other compassion and grace. Would you allow say, ourselves space to make mistakes? Mm -hmm. would, would you say that maybe the challenge could be take the risk to make a mistake? Absolutely. And, and then just, you know, to make a mistake, I don't know, do anything, talking to your kids, to your parents, to somebody about something that's like a taboo topic, you know, maybe talking about talking, I don't know, right now I can't think of any specific thing, you know, something that you don't feel safe talking about in your family, your home, your whatever, take the risk, like give yourself the compassion to say, I might screw it up and it's okay. Right. The more I practice, the easier it will get. You know, the more I practice Absolutely. talking to my partner about that thing that I'm terrified to talk to him or her about, the more that step I- Step outside of your comfort zone. Step outside of your comfort zone. Allow yourself to be vulnerable. Oh, that's so it's all hard things. These are really hard things, right? But yeah, definitely step, step out of, of your comfort zone. 
create relationships where you feel comfortable asking the questions that you need to ask. So if we want to learn about other people, about other cultures, about whatever, we just, you know, we shouldn't ask the first random person, right? So do the work to cultivate relationships. Do the I work like that. to... Yeah, you know, because once we have a relationship, then we can talk about stuff. Join an organization that yeah. represents a cause or people that are com- or a culture that's completely different from you. And where I, you know, I would say something that if I just close my eyes and think, what am I avoiding? What group of people am I avoiding? That's where you should go. That's where you should go. Exactly. <laughs> right, it's right. pretty. I mean, that's a pretty good clue. If you're avoiding that group, it's for a reason. So yeah, go knowing that you might screw it up a thousand times and your intention and you there, and you will, and your intention there is to get a little bit closer to that group that I'm terrified of. Somebody told me once, if you're not getting things wrong with DEI work, you're not doing it right. <laughs> I love it. And it's, and, and I love, I mean, it's like one of those phrases that it's been branded into my brain because, because that's what it is. I mean, if you're not doing it, if, if you're not making mistakes, you're not doing it right. So yeah. So bottom line, step out of your comfort zone create relationships, right? So, and this would be branching out. Understand that collectives aren't monoliths. So get to know individuals as well and see what it is that they need, not what you think they need. And give yourself, cut yourself some slack. Yeah. It's been amazing having you on here. We, I, I literally feel like we could keep talking for another hour. Right. Um, <laughs> so thank you so much, Ariadne Maria Ferro Bajuelo for coming to being all of us. If you are listening and you would like to know more about Ariadne, know where to follow her, I will link up to her profiles in the show notes. And it's been great having you here. Thank you so much. Thank you. I really, really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. All right, guys. See you next time. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you can feel the inspiration and passion that we put into this conversation and that it empowers you to be confident, compassionate, and courageous on your journey, on our journey, to becoming all of us. If you enjoyed that conversation and you'd like to hear more, please be sure to click on subscribe or follow to get your weekly dose of inspiration. And remember to stop by and rate us with a five-star rating on the App Store. Leave your comments below. Let us know what it is that you enjoy about these conversations so that we can bring more of them to you. And stop by Instagram to follow us at the Being All of Us podcast, B-A-O-U podcast. Thanks to the group Bombadil for our intro music, Avery, and to Scott Gratton for our outro music, Motown is Yotown. Come join us again next week for more. Until then, shine bright, you beautiful soul. You are the change the world needs. Go out and shine. Shine.